Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Donald Trump international stand-up comedy sensation and Europe's bad decisions on Iran. Welcome to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, speaking to you from our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames in London, in for Mary Kissel again. And I am joined again this week by my friend and colleague Hugo Restall, who is dialing in from his usual secure, undisclosed location in Asia. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Joe. Good to be with you again. Well... We'll see about that after we're done with this chat, because we have to talk about uh, President Trump in New York, at the United Nations General Assembly. We have to talk about this, whether we want to or not, um, because uh, the president uh, delivered a major set piece address uh, to uh, gathered leaders at the General Assembly. He presided over a meeting of the UN Security Council. Uh, he delivered a uh, extraordinary, long, rambling press conference. Uh, we will not talk about that press conference. I think that we can leave that to our colleagues on the Potomac Watch podcast, since the main thrust of it seems to have been domestic U.S. politics. But, you know, for the rest of this, Hugo, it's hard to know what to make of, um, you know, Trump and his successes or failures this week. And you know, I feel like maybe the place to start talking about that is with this speech to the the General Assembly. I mean, I've had a flip through it. I've watched the tape, and my general impression was that there were moments of uh, sparkling coherence in here, um, you know, interspersed with other moments where you kind of wish that maybe he hadn't taken the opportunity to deliver what felt a lot more like a domestic political speech. I mean, what was what was your take on how that went for him? Well, I think you just put your finger on it there with domestic um, speech interspersed with foreign policy, because I think a lot of it was directed at a, at a domestic audience, which is often the case when leaders come and speak at the General Assembly. They're often speaking to the, the folks back home, posturing on, on some issues of, of foreign policy. So, Trump, in the speech, I agree, had um, some, some very nice lines of truth-telling on Iran and, and other issues, interspersed with, with fulminating against globalism without really defining what that means. And so to call this a Trump doctrine, perhaps it is the Trump doctrine because there isn't any coherent doctrine per se, but it's sort of whatever, um, whatever he feels like it is at that particular moment, the U.S. will engage with other countries or won't engage and, you know, will look to its natural, national interest, but will cooperate on, on the, some other issues. So it's, it's a bit of everything and uh, good luck trying to, uh, to characterize it. In, in one or two sentences. Uh, yeah, it, it seems to me that it, it's probably better to talk about a Trump style of foreign policy rather than a Trump doctrine. And it, you know, it, that that's uh, in itself is maybe interesting because one of the, uh, to me at least, fascinating things about Trump from a foreign policy perspective over the year and a half that he's been in office now is, you know, it is certainly true that uh, American presidents historically have not been elected uh, over foreign policy. I mean, the the reality is that the P-51 
people who want to run for a president in America do so because they are really animated by uh, various domestic concerns, and they they build electoral majorities for themselves by speaking to those domestic concerns, by running on the economy, by running on um, you know law and order within the U.S. or protecting the U.S. homeland from terrorism, that that sort of thing. So, I mean, you, you never expect that you're going to have a presidential candidate who is going to be out there as a candidate articulating a particularly clear worldview in terms of foreign pro- policy. I mean, what's different about Trump is that usually uh, they end up developing some kind of coherent you know, foreign policy view when they're in office, um, even if they didn't set out intending to, just because they feel that you know a president has to. Uh, he seems to be much more interested in the style of uh, you know in foreign policy rhetoric or international diplomacy, which involves throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. So you can talk a lot about, as you were saying, sometimes we will intervene, other times we won't intervene. Sometimes we'll have uh, you know issues like Iran that we will focus on very intensively. Other times we won't be so engaged with what's going on in the rest of the world. I mean, maybe the Trump doctrine here is the absence of a Trump doctrine. Right. I think there were a couple of uh, solid conservative slash realist ideas in there, one of which is, you know, sovereignty is is best defense of of right and people's interests. The sovereign nation state is still highly important and and its interests should be preserved and we should not rush to, to compromise sovereignty in you know, multilateral bodies. Another one is the idea that a lot of Democratic presidents, U.S. presidents, have become very um, absorbed with the process of these uh, multilateral institutions to the point that they lose sight of the national interest. You know, Obama would give speeches extolling uh, globalism, and the, the process of engagement actually became the, the end rather than the mean. And uh, Trump, you know, refocusing back on the national interest is also a very solid Republican idea. So I give him credit for, for both of those being in the speech, if not uh, being articulated all that clearly. I, one important point to talk about here, the, and this should be reassuring to people, although I think that in typical Trump fashion, it often gets lost in a lot of the blusters. Actually, you know, you put your finger on it when you talk about this being a a standard version of conservative foreign policy. I mean, it's certainly not the kind of foreign policy vision in terms of its sweep or ambition that we've seen from the the most uh, immediate previous Republican president, George W. Bush. But, you know, what you see both in the U.N. speech itself and also in Trump's approach to a lot of these issues is actually a president who is not retreating from the rest of the world in the way I think that a lot of people might have uh, worried that he would. He has not actually ended up acting out a lot of the more isolationist uh, tendencies that he seemed to be appealing to. Uh, during the, the 2016 campaign season, he has been prepared to engage in uh, you know, matters beyond America's borders on um, you know, issues like Iran. Uh, you know, you've had all of this activity on North Korea, some of it helpful, some of it not. But there, there is definitely this interest there. And maybe, that, you know, maybe we should actually talk a little bit more specifically about Iran, which was the the subject of the Security Council meeting that uh, Trump chaired uh, after his speech to the the General Assembly. And here again, the news seems to be that he is um, 
you know, acting in line with actually a well-established consensus in Washington on uh, the Iran problem, the flaws of the 2015 nuclear deal that the Obama administration had negotiated. And for whatever reason, and I'm sure we can speculate about what those reasons are, Trump is really struggling to get uh, other world leaders to go along with him. Right. I think this is where you see the problem of attacking the, the multilateral institutions perhaps too much and alienating your, your allies who you really need in a situation like this. I mean, we have the Germans and, and uh, the other Europeans sort of smirking at Trump, what Trump is saying, and, and uh, dismissing it out of hand and trying to act undermine it by setting up the special purpose uh, vehicle to trade with. And, you know, that that is to some extent the result of Trump not building alliances and sort of what George Schultz used to call uh, mowing the lawn of U.S. relationships with other countries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on this issue, I feel like I have to, to step in a little bit, uh, maybe you know, unaccustomedly to President Trump's defense, because you know, my read on <laughs> Yeah, I'm being serious here. Just you know, surprisingly enough, I mean, my my read on the um, you know, Iran-Europe situation is that actually, I think that a lot of it has to do just with Europeans' perception of uh, you know what you might call the aesthetics of Trump. The fact that uh, because mm-hmm. he is so unconventional, and I think that there has been a lot of um, you know. He's very unpopular among a lot of segments of the European public over here for various reasons. That has made it difficult for European leaders to actually say we have things in common with with Trump on the Iran issue. I mean, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, you know, delivered a speech to the U.S. Congress earlier this year when he was visiting Washington, uh, identifying the same flaws in that 2015 Iran nuclear deal that uh, the Trump administration is, is trying to address now. The fact that the deal doesn't cover the ballistic missile program, uh, the fact that it doesn't adequately address uh, Iran's military adventurism around the Middle East. Uh, and yet, I think that for various reasons of uh, you know aesthetic problems or domestic politics here, European leaders are getting themselves backed into a bit of a corner where they can't um, admit that they agree with Trump, that these are problems that need to be addressed. And instead, they seem to be pushing themselves further and further into this antagonism toward him, which I think is probably not particularly helpful on a lot of these issues. Well, I think that's that's not too far from what I was trying to say. I mean, maybe I'd say instead of aesthetics of Trump, the style of Trump, in that the more you behave in a mercurial fashion and an unpredictable fashion and disrupt relationships, the less trust there is when you try to convince your partners that we really need to go back and uh, look at uh, re-examine this deal and, and redo this deal. There's not trust that uh, you're going to follow through and take it, take due consideration of their interests and make the make the process uh, stable and predictable. You know, you, I think Trump has, has sacrificed his ability to work with the Europeans because of his his style. Well, and from that perspective, I think we should close out this discussion with the thing that really made a lot of headlines. Uh, you know, going back to that General Assembly address, which was the laughter that he elicited uh, right at the beginning when uh, Trump was talking about his domestic economic achievements. And for me, that moment just seemed to encapsulate so much of what's going wrong on both sides of a lot of these diplomatic issues. Because, I mean, on the one hand, you can make a good case that this was not really the right venue uh, for Trump or any other U.S. president to be trying to score domestic political points on his economic record. 
And yet there also is a certain, to put it kindly, a lack of diplomacy on the part of many other people in the room um, you know, who you know, indulged their instinct to chuckle at that uh, you know, very Trumpian behavior from the podium there. I mean, it just seems like it, you know, people are presenting this as an embarrassment for Trump himself, but it seems to me that it is more representative of just a bad moment uh, diplomatically for everyone who was involved in it. Yeah, I think it's, it's fairly typical of the UN, and that's why Trump is probably on solid ground with the American people, because they, they always like to see the U.S. president telling off the UN and, and um, exposing some of the, the global only of uh, that goes on in the in the General Assembly, so I don't think that's really going to hurt him that much with uh, with the American people. It might even be a uh, it might even be a positive for him. We're talking about Donald Trump on the world stage, and this is Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, twenty twenty four, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Drive time, gym time, anytime. WSJ Podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal... This is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, in for Mary Kissel, and my colleague Hugo Restall is on the line in Asia. And we are still talking about Trump at the United Nations because that was the big foreign policy event this week. We had a lot of activity there. And I think that, uh, you know, for the second half of our podcast today, Hugo, it's probably worth focusing a little bit more about um, you know, some issues that emerged in, you know, Trump's session at the Security Council. And I think that there were two aspects of, of that, one of which we have already touched on in the first half, um, but bears a bit more discussion. What is, you know, the, and that is the Iran story. I mean, this, this was ostensibly the, the one of the main subjects of that Security Council meeting. And yet at the end of this week, uh, Trump seems to be no closer to any of America's uh, allies on the Iran issue than we were before. If anything, we're a little further away. And at the same time, we have this whole new uh, front opening up um, you know, involving China and this strange allegation that, that uh, Trump unleashed, which I think was in the prepared text of the, the remarks. So this was done with forethought, um, you know, suggesting that, that China and not only Russia is trying to meddle in some way in America's electoral process. So I, you know, I think first off, if we um, you know, take a look at, at Iran, and I mean, we, we've discussed a little bit about some of the you know, broad problems here, but we should talk a little bit more about the unhelpful details that have emerged this week. I mean, you, you referred to, um, you know, Europe talking about wanting to facilitate trade with Iran despite the U.S. sanctions. Trump, you know, digging in 
Where is this going? I mean, is there potential for some kind of compromise still to emerge, or do we need to reconcile ourselves to the fact that uh, U.S. and Europe are drifting apart on this? Curious what your view is on on whether this is a symbolic move of this special purpose vehicle, because it, it seems to me that it won't be terribly effective in uh, in promoting the uh, the oil trade and revenue that uh, Iran uses, because the big the big traders are, aren't going to use it. So there's the, the big stick of of U.S. taking away access to its financial system still seems to be working, and uh, Europe is thumbing its nose, but it, this is still going to uh, have a pretty devastating effect on the Iranian economy. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think we need to probably take a little step back here and explain to uh, listeners what um, you know has actually happened on this front. So, I mean, the, of course, people will know that the backdrop to all of this has been that the uh, you know, Trump administration has withdrawn from the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, and the, the you know the premise of that deal uh, was that the U.S. would lift uh, secondary sanctions so that uh, non-U.S. companies could uh, start re-engaging in business with Iran uh, in exchange for uh, you know, Iran's compliance with various terms, trying to limit its nuclear program. And of course, it's you know, old news to people who've been following this, that there were a lot of holes with that agreement in terms of the, uh, you know, benchmarks it set for Iranian compliance, the extent to which it didn't really limit Iran's nuclear program in a meaningful way. But the Europeans are really very heavily invested in this. And I think it's only partly because, um, you know, they were hoping that this would open new business opportunities for them. I think it's also because there's just a widespread um view over here. First off, that this deal is a major diplomatic achievement for Europe. Uh, you know, the European Union as an institution was involved in helping to negotiate it. You have three European signatories, Germany, France, and uh, the United Kingdom, uh, you know, are party to this. And so, you know, they think that they need to hold up their end of the deal just as a, a you know, keep the commercial flows open, even as Trump is withdrawing from the deal and trying to reimpose the sanctions. And, you know, the problem that they now have to work around is that if the U.S. is imposing the sanctions, it doesn't really matter if anyone else is lifting them because the access to the U.S. market, access to the U.S. financial system is just so important that European companies won't uh, trade with Iran if they think that they are endangering their uh, entry into America at some point. So, you know, the Europeans now try to set up these alternate financing methods so that they can try to skirt around American sanctions that way. It, it just seems to me to be a big missed opportunity here because the, the Europeans recognize that there are main, you know, major structural problems with this agreement. And yet, instead of trying to join with the U.S. to you know, build more pressure on Tehran, to bring Iran back to the table to bolster that 2015 deal, they are insisting on sticking with it in a way that I think probably actually drives even more of a wedge between Europe and uh, the U.S. than already existed on this. Without that leverage um, and giving Iran hope they can hold out to uh, continue the deal, as you say, this this makes it practically inevitable that uh, the pain will continue both for Iran and for U.S. EU relations. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the problem that um, you know, Europeans, and particularly the European Commission in Brussels, because the, the commissioner who's in charge of uh, you know, foreign affairs, Federica Mogherini, uh, has been particularly vocal on that. Uh, she has been instrumental in devising this uh, so-called special purpose vehicle, which is the entity that they want to set up to help facilitate trade between Iran and the outside world. Uh, if you know traditional banks or other financing channels aren't available uh, because of the U.S. sanctions, 
I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to their argument that uh, you know, this is a major diplomatic achievement for them, and they want to show that they can actually be a diplomatic force in the world. But, you know, it feels like a, a better option for them would probably be to try to find ways that they could cooperate with the, the U.S. Uh, rather than antagonizing America at the expense of achieving some of, you know, progress on these things that they themselves recognize that you know, eventually need to happen. Right. And I'm, I'm curious what's going to happen with this uh, special purpose vehicle when there are some test cases. Um, obviously, the, the big traders are not going to use it, but... There will be some uh, some entities that do inevitably, and then uh, when the U.S. imposes secondary sanctions on those entities, how will it deal with that that situation? So uh, we're setting ourselves up for um, potentially a big conflict that will be face losing for one side or another further down the road. And finally, I feel like we'd be remiss if we then didn't also talk about the China angle, uh, because you know, as we already mentioned, the, you know, another. Headline from uh, Trump's visit to Turtle Bay this week is this allegation that, that Trump, uh, uh, that China, is trying to meddle in the impending U.S. midterm elections. I mean, this really is amazing. I mean, first off, because it doesn't seem to have been off the cuff; it seems to have been something that was written into the speech, and yet um, there doesn't appear to be any solid evidence for it, as opposed to the Russia situation, where there does seem to be some evidence that uh, you know Russia has tried to meddle certainly in uh, you know European elections probably in in the US even if this collusion narrative directly between Russia and Trump himself is somewhat questionable so i mean it, it raises this question i mean is china actually you know also trying to interfere in america's elections and you know if president trump is going to just sort of throw this you know, line out there in a speech, uh, what obligation does the administration have to American citizens and voters uh, to tell us what the government knows about foreign attempts to to interfere in our electoral process? I think there was one indication that um, this might be uh, some kind of cyber activity. That jibe with past Chinese behavior in hacking campaigns. So I believe they, they hacked the McCain and Obama campaigns. So I think that could be what uh, the U.S. is investigating. To call that interference in the election rather than intelligence gathering um, may be a, a reach. China's modus operandi has always been quite different from Russia. Um, it, it has not set up, you know, massive uh, botnet to uh, try to influence public opinion uh, on Twitter and other social media. Um, it's it's been much more. Um, based on intelligence gathering and an opportunistic gathering of, of information. So I think Trump would like to uh, deflect some of the Russia story by saying that the Chinese are up to this too. And he's, he's been very upset in the last week uh, about how China is targeting its tariffs at uh, states where he uh, won the popular vote. You know, the China Daily, their inserts in American newspapers, the things they've been writing about the trade war. He may be conflating all of these things into um, interference in uh, in the midterm elections. To be honest, we we just don't know because he didn't present present the evidence. But that would be my best guess of, of what's going on. Yeah, I mean the trade thing certainly is uh, already out in the open. I don't think that there's any been you know been any mystery that China is trying to 
exert right. uh, pressure through its tariff policies in ways that will, um, you know, to put it very, very diplomatically, that might remind U.S. voters of the benefits of a more open trading relationship with China. But that's standard practice. I mean, the Europeans are doing that with uh, bourbon whiskey and uh, Harley Davidsons and things like that. So, I mean, it's not that that is a generally accepted practice does not usually fall in the in the category of, of interference in election. Exactly, and I think that that is why um, you know President Trump's comments on this are so troubling. It's because uh, you know if especially after the way that the, the Russia issue has uh, you know, distorted our political discussion for such a long time now, you know, several years that, that we've been having these various debates. You you would hope that one thing that we would learn from that is that if there is information that some of these things are going on, that transparency is the the best way. And I don't think that transparency means just um, yeah inserting a couple of sentences into a speech that is designed to you know make a Chinese leader or ambassador look very nervous. Um, I think that or, or or skeptical. I think that the real point here has to be to try to explain to uh, the American voters what we know about what is actually going on here. Mm-hmm. I, would, but, I would agree with that. Yeah, well, in in that case, I think we'd probably better stop there. Uh, we've been talking about Europe, Iran, Donald Trump, China, and the UN General Assembly, and that's all the time we've got for today. So I'm going to thank my colleague Hugo Restall for joining, and you can find him on Twitter at Hugo Restall. I'm on at Joseph Sternberg, both of them all one word. word. Give us a follow and also subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your audio content to make sure you're up to date on all of the latest growing global disorder. I'm Joseph Sternberg, and this has been Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening.